Welcome to another episode of Awaken Parenting. I'm your host, Jill McPherson, parenting consultant, mother of four, and teacher, here to answer your parenting questions. This week, I'm putting the focus on our kids at school. How many parents out there, and teachers for that matter, have ever wondered what school would be like without grades and report cards? It's hard to imagine that's even possible. I mean, without grades, how do students and parents know how they are doing in school academically? Have you noticed how the quest for obtaining good grades often takes away from the primary goal of learning for the love of learning? Have you seen your kids dismiss understanding material in order to do whatever they can to get the marks they want? Have you seen your child label themselves as dumb or stupid after looking at the report card? Have you seen your child give up trying because why bother? They'll never get good grades anyway. Have you or your child been confused about the mark they received from a teacher and with no idea on how to improve? Have you ever wondered where their innate curiosity went? Where did their excitement about learning go? Did they love school in kindergarten, but now school is becoming a dreaded place to be? What happened? Well, on today's episode of Awakened Parenting, I'm going to try to get to these questions and more. Today, I have a guest with me from the United States. She is a nationally board certified teacher, author, blogger, and speaker, who is an expert in the topic of assessment. She is the author of several books. Some of her more well-known titles include Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grade School, Hacking Homework, 10 Ways to Inspire Learning Outside the Classroom, and The Power of Questioning, Opening Up the World of Student Inquiry. She also has a TEDx talk entitled A Recovering Perfectionist Journey to Give Up Grades. She has taught high school English and journalism in New York public schools, was an instructional coach and the director of humanities, and is now an assessment consultant with the Core Collaborative. She has been in education for 20 years, and I'm delighted to say I have Star Saxteen with me here today. So if you are interested in supporting your child to stay connected to the love of learning, or if you're a teacher wondering how a greatest classroom is possible, then be sure to stay tuned to today's episode of Awaken Parenting. I want to begin by saying as a mom, I have always struggled with marks and report cards. There's always been something that has felt intuitively off for me when I'm reading my kids' report cards. Even though my kids have always done very well in school, when they come home with report cards, I always feel some heaviness in my gut. I suppose because I never wanted them to use their report cards to label themselves or to allow marks to limit what they believe about themselves or what they can or can't do. Perhaps this is because as a teacher, I know how subjective grades can be. As much as people in education want to create exemplars and standards to determine what is an A and what is a B, there's still a great deal of conscious and unconscious subjectivity to marking. A couple of years ago, my daughter, Grace's principal, Mr. Hale, introduced a book to the teachers at her school called Hacking Assessment. 
when I asked Mr. Hale more about the book, he loaned me his copy. And after reading it, I felt so thrilled to find another teacher who understood my struggles with how we assess students. And I was even more thrilled that she was proving through her success in her own classroom that there was another way, that there was a way to shift the focus more on learning and less on grades. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when I contacted Star Sexteen and she accepted my invitation to join me today on this podcast. I want to welcome Star Sexteen, who is joining us from her home in New York. Thank you so much, Star, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, great. Okay, so this topic is so huge, and uh, there would be uh, so much that we could cover. So I thought we would, you know, focus in on some questions that I've had from from parents and teachers. So we'll just dive right into that. So first of all, let's just get right to it. Why should we even consider a gradeless classroom, and how is that even possible? So it's been my experience, and when I was in the classroom, I was mostly teaching 11th and 12th graders, but I've so I've taught seventh through 12, um, depending on the year, uh, that students are trained to expect a grade at the end of every assignment that they have. And then they take those grades and attribute them to how they feel about themselves as learners. Um, and when my son was very li- little, I have a 15 year old now, um, I learned very quickly that In his school, they were using standards-based grading. And as a 12th grade AP English teacher, it seemed um, unfair that I could only give my students one grade to really, you know, on a report card to really show their learning. And I never thought that it did a terribly adequate job of communicating uh, what, what kind of learning was going on in the class. So it was that initial discomfort and, and it's something you expressed earlier, too, in your introduction that, you know, there's something so subjective about the way we label learning. And as a writing and reading teacher, an English teacher, um, I felt especially challenged about labeling student writing um, because really, who am I to judge? I mean, there are certain things that are definitely teachable, and then there are certain things that you develop over time by practicing and it's a unique style thing that comes when you're a writer based on, you know, your own aesthetic and kind of how you develop your voice. So I I thought it was really important that I started lessening the impact of grades in class by giving very, um, very good actionable feedback based on different standards we were using in the classroom and engaging students with me in that process. So it was less me being the arbiter of whether or not their work was at level, below level, or um, just defining criteria together and then determining how well their their learning suited that criteria and inviting their voices into that experience as well. So the how is very much tied to the why. If I want to empower student voices so students feel really good about their learning, and I'm building on successes and strengths that they already have instead of the deficit model, always trying to find what they're not doing well, and then kind of call it out and tell them that they're wrong, which to me, the language that we use around learning really is really powerful. Some of the ways we approach learning with kids has 
unintended effects of really impacting how they feel as learners, how they feel as people. So when we're calling learning right or wrong, I think we are shutting down conversations that could very potentially um, evolve a person's thinking about a particular content area or skill that we want them to develop. And so it became common practice in my classroom for students to be a part of curriculum design. They were helping me. They, they had a lot of choice in the kind of products they were producing. Um, the class grew to be largely project-based. So I had the opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with a lot of them and in small groups because I was readily able to pull them into those groups while they were working on their projects. And I also had the opportunity to really observe the learning that was happening, take notes and be able to then decide what mini lesson I need to be teaching to the whole class, if it was small group mini lessons that need to, needed to occur. And then on the flip side of that, students were taught to reflect on the standards and content we were working on so that if there were things that they were learning that I couldn't see, because perhaps the assessment I designed didn't appropriately offer them the opportunity to do so, they had a window to provide me with that information. And then I could read their reflection prior to engaging with their work so that I had a window into their learning. And then the feedback I provided could be more aligned with goals that they set for themselves and, and specific things they felt they needed to work on. So it, it, we became partners in developing their growth and progress in, in that situation. And the company that I work with does this with kids as young as kindergarten. So as much as I may not have been teaching kindergarten, it is very possible to co-construct success criteria with a group of six-year-olds as long as they understand, you know, what it means to be successful and what that could look like. So these conversations don't have to exclusively be occurring at the higher levels with kids who are more mature. They could happen with kids as, as young as our earliest learners and get them involved in the process, giving them that vocabulary um, as soon as they start school. Okay, that's a lot, that's great. So it really is hacking assessment, as your book says, it's, it's kind of revamping the whole process. So it's not about eliminating assessment, saying, well, we're just gonna come and do work and we won't, you know, we won't grade or do any evaluating or anything like that. It sounds like it starts with, with the, the co-creation of, um, the curriculum and then the, um, my mind's gone blank, but I know um, success criteria, sorry, you said mentioned. And, and, the, and the good news is I know in our school board, that's been, that's been a push now for a while, um, is having success criteria, but maybe not quite to the degree of co-creating success criteria. It's been more teachers showing this is, you know, this is what's an A, this is what's a B, this is what's a C. Um, and so that it's, it's giving those exemplars so that they know, oh, this is what the teacher's, you know, looking for. Um, but again, the language comes up and I'm, I'm thinking of that because I've got some in, in high school and post-secondary. So much of their learning is directed to trying to please the teacher, trying to meet the teacher's expectation. And the whole idea of, it's like they forget that they're doing this for themselves. They forget that they're, they're doing this assignment for them to learn, not to please um, a teacher, not to get approval by getting the A stamped on it after. Um, so that's, that's, it's a whole shift in, in thinking um, that I, that I love you're introducing and, and the idea of 
uh, students becoming in, empowered. So then, so then when you just say ultimately in the classroom, you know, there's some sort of end result, there's some sort of grade, but what you're saying is it's, it's co-developed or yes. a bit more about that. Sure. So th- this is the piece now teaching in New York city schools. I had a report card that I had to put a grade on I, because I, first of all, I was the only teacher in my building working like this. Right. Um, so if I didn't put my grades in, it would hold up everybody else's report cards the way that New York City schools, you know, works. What I ended up doing was um, we had a portfolio system in the school. So students really did also track progress over time. That was a school-wide sort of culture that we had. And at midterm and end of term, I would have assessment conferences with my students where they would have appointment times, we would sit down, there was a Google form that they filled out where they went through their portfolio, really examined the standards we had gone over for that marking period, um, and then would have to find evidence in their own work, kind of like defending a dissertation where they're like, yes, I'm meeting the standard. If you look at this assignment, this was the feedback that I got on it. This was the progress that I was able to make on it. And, you know, these are areas I'm still working in. So it was twofold. They were setting goals based on the progress that they had already achieved. And then together, based on their body of work, we would co-construct what grade would go on their report card. And we used a letter system. So A to F and, you know, just based on their level of mastery over the course of that marking period with whatever standards we were working with we would decide what went on the report card together. Um, frankly, the grade to me didn't, it didn't matter because if a student mm. could sit down with me and really have a conversation about their learning and be able to articulate the skills they were developing and really articulate where they were struggling and advocate for getting the help that they needed, then that was far more valuable to me than me telling them that, they were masterful in any particular area of what we were learning. And of course, parents, since I was the only crazy teacher doing something like this in (laughs) school and it was happening in a 12th grade AP classroom, you know, some of those parents were concerned as well, but um, just to put them at ease, I had started a YouTube channel. I had really tried to reach out to parents ahead of time to let them know, Hey, when you go into our online assessment system, my dashboard's going to look really different than all the other teachers' dashboards. You're going to get so much more information about your child as a learner than you were getting just with a grade. You're going to, you know, see the specific areas that they're excelling in. You're going to see the specific areas we've set goals around so that they're working on them. And there's going to be action steps so that if you want to be involved in supporting them at home, these are the things you can be doing to support them. So they were getting so much more information from me than they were accustomed to getting on a traditional report card or in a traditional LMS system where it was just like this this assignment done, checked, this is the point, check plus, whatever that even means. And it was more like narrative feedback that they got on almost every single piece of turned in, you know, formative and summative work that went in. And the class really took on more of a formative process feel 
they were constantly revising, constantly looking at work and redoing. And it wasn't until end of term that we would determine summative growth so that kids had as much time as they needed to show their level of proficiency and mastery on particular standards at grade level. Okay, so how did it go, you know, when you did have this, the sit down conference, how do you find that kids did in the reflection process? And did you ever have those moments where like, they're like, this is an A and you're like, uh, for me, it's a C. Like, how did that, how did you handle those moments or did they even happen? Oh, they happened. I mean, you'll, you'll always have one or two kids who have delusions of grandeur, but it's usually kids who are really adept learners are harder on themselves than they are easier. Mm. And, and sometimes the ones that are telling you that it's better than it is, they're just seeing how much they could get away with. And sometimes they don't submit as much work as we expect them to. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't have the skill set that they need to have. I think structured schooling is more about compliance than it is about learning. So sometimes mm. just questioning, um, was that assignment essential if they've already proven mastery in that particular area? What have I done to differentiate so that they're still stretching their learning and it's not just the same expectations over and over and over again and giving them the opportunity. Well, if you didn't want to do that assignment, what could you do in its place to show me that we've stretched from the last time we looked at this particular standard? What does that look like for you? Um, It's been my experience that it's not that kids don't want to learn. I think that sometimes the ones that are most school averse just might not be compliant but that doesn't mean they aren't getting what they need to get. They just don't feel like what I'm asking them to do. And those are two very different things. Absolutely. absolutely, Yes, for sure. So sometimes, so what I'm hearing you say is sometimes the kids who struggle at school, it's not that the understanding isn't there. It's, it's their lack of desire for compliancy and that, and their lack of desire probably in the um, activities in which we're asking them to demonstrate their learning. So they're, you know, and I've seen that time and time again, especially when I was a special ed teacher, kids were sort of like, this makes no sense. I, I don't know why I'm doing this or, you know, or they struggle to find the connection between what they needed to learn and demonstrating it through this activity or assignment. Um, and so they, they were disheartened and kind of didn't put their all in it. And then a lot of times, you know, I think teachers, we fall into the trap then of assessing their effort and enthusiasm Mm -hmm. rather than their actual, um, intellectual, uh, comprehension and, and, and skills. Um, and so there, it can be quite, um, a gray area. So if we could bring this, you know, down into elementary, uh, because I know a lot of our parents here, um, are dealing with elementary age children. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you um, see, and I know maybe this is a challenging um, idea, but how would we sort of see this and say like a primary, like, you know, a grade one, two class, they're, you know, they're learning on, re- they're working on reading skills, some basic, you know, math skills. Um, and then of course, other subjects as well. Um, but how would you see this happening in a classroom? So, I mean, I I think the same way we would do station learning at that early stage, you could have, like, kids should be able to articulate what they're learning and why they're learning it as soon as they're learning it. 
it doesn't have to be a secondary kind of thing. Students should understand right. that having a mastery of numeracy is going to help them in, you know, with their math skills, not only for school, but in life as they come later and the necessity to understand how to add and subtract and how understanding numbers is going to help them to be able to do that. And same with learning the alphabet and learning to read at those early stages. So even getting them to understand what they do well already, to be able to articulate it in those terms and be able to set goals of something they might be working on. So even in a kinder class, they could draw something and tell a story about it, even if they're not writing yet, and be able to tell you why they drew what they did and start to have that vocabulary of how they talk about their learning. And, and a lot of times they think it's just a matter of making time to let them reflect in whatever way is appropriate for the age that we're looking at. You're obviously not gonna ask a first or second grader to write paragraphs worth of information to reflect because they don't have that skill set yet. But you right. certainly can ask them to record a flip grid or to talk to you one-on-one -on -one and you could be the note taker for them. And the report card shouldn't just be to the parent at that point. The kid should know what's going home even at that early stage about you know, what they know how to do. Maybe not in terms of whether or not they're you know, they're on a first, you know, I'm reading a G right now, whatever, you know, that means to them, mm -hmm. but be able to say, you know, I know how to read multiple sentences in a picture book at one time. And I could tell you what those words mean when I read them. Little ones could do that. They absolutely right. can do that. Okay. So I'm still hearing that the, the process in itself can be applied to any age learner. It's just the how is twigged based on their skill set and, you know, right, you know, level of what, what they can are capable of. But it's still about uh, co-creating the expectation, um, reflection, and then co um, sort of assessing and evaluating where they're at as a learner and then setting goals to move forward from we've accomplished this. So now you, you know, can move on to, to this. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's feeling they're empowered with uh, self-reflection information and empowered then to set direction on where they're moving forward rather than just constantly being fed what they, um, what they can can or can't do being told, okay, you've got this. Now you're going to do this. Now you're going to do this. They're more involved in the decision-making of that. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Okay. And I'm actually, I just put um, for you to maybe add in the notes for your listeners, the core collaboratives YouTube channel actually has a number of video examples of young kids um, using success criteria to provide peer feedback to engage in conversations about their learning. So we do have some, you know, two to five minute videos that can really help parents and teachers see what it looks like at a young age. Um, and those speak a lot better to that, that younger time than I can personally from my experience, barring my experience as a mom to a kid at that age when, when he was that age. But, right. 
Right. So I'm thinking what I want to do is make this, um, I know the teacher's listening and will be following a lot of what we're saying. And I want to make sure parents feel included in this too. I think this is really relevant right now because there's so many parents who are home now with their kids, mm-hmm. whether they're doing online learning with a teacher um, or they've, they've opted for the home learning um you know, where they just decide they were going to homeschool their kids independently. Either way, they're much more involved uh, in supporting particular younger ones um, than ever before. Um, So what this brings me to one of my questions that I've had with um, a mom who has a seven-year-old who's in grade two. And um, basically this child, she says, is um, getting D's in reading and writing. Um, and we seem to be on the path to figuring that out. She says, um, this is uh, mom, uh, Melanie, who's um, from just north of Toronto as well. And uh, so she says, uh, so I guess my question would be, how do you support your child through this challenge? Um, how do you continue to encourage them when they just want to be like their friends and read a book? Um, it feels like we're letting her down because she is so eager to learn. Uh, mm-hmm. She sees a resource teacher twice a week. We work on reading at home and she also spends two hours a week with a tutor who's also a teacher. How do you keep school a positive experience? And I think what I want to step in here and say is we are not trying to sidestep um, or buffer something for for kids. Sometimes there can be misinterpretation that if we, if we you know, um, stop doing our traditional grading system, that then it's only because we don't want their feelings to be hurt when they see a D on a report card, um, and that's not it at all. Um, it's it's far more about instead of uh, keeping secrets and keeping that information from them, it's empowering them with more information and feeling more self-directed. Um, so, what would you suggest to this mom? Because I know she so far. I did check in with mom. She um, her daughter still likes school, but I think she this mom's being really proactive and concerning that these continual D's on a report card uh, might start to really deflate her desire as a learner uh, to even go to school. Um, What would you say to that, sir? Well, my initial reaction to that is no second grader should be getting graded. Sometimes at that age, it just takes them a little longer to get to a certain place. Like children's brain development happens at different times. And especially like you could be delayed and then all of a sudden just get it at that age. And there's, it's not because there's something wrong, especially if the child is showing interest and she has all these supports in place. Um, I think it's just a matter of patience and understanding that learning sometimes takes longer for some learners in other circumstances. I think other supports that could be put in places like finding um, audiobooks and then if you're not reading to her while she's following along because I do think it's important to hear and see what's happening in a text as it goes um, and maybe starting with picture books and having them tell stories about making predictions on the page and then reading you know using those really key liter- literacy skills those early literacy skills to get the reader a little bit more engaged um, I would worry at that young age, if we are labeling her as a D reader, that that could have permanent damage, really, um, that could turn her off. And, you know, I think that it's okay to say that a child is struggling with reading. I think if you get them the necessary supports, but you still don't need to label it as a, a D. 
Okay. So then, so for the, you know, uh, for the parents and teachers listening. So are, are you saying that it's about not giving that final evaluative grade of like, it, we're going to rubber stamp this a, a D it's about just giving ongoing feedback um, and allowing her to be informed as a reader where her reading level is at and then just continually sort of through self-reflection and feedback and using strategies, we just continually support her as a reader, but she doesn't need the label D. Right. So, I mean, if there are standards that we are using to determine what makes a child at grade level proficient, right. and we take that and build a progression, you know, early learner to competent, like to competent early reader to competent reader, right. and we put it in terms kids can understand. So we take the adult garble out of it and we put it into language that would be student facing. Right. And then we ask them to identify where they are in the spectrum. And instead of labeling the spectrum, maybe we color code it. We ask them to self-identify where they see themselves on that progression and tell them oh. that it's fluid. You could, you're going to be moving, making progress so that they could see the progress that they're making. And even though it might not be where someone else in their class is, they're celebrating the fact that they're moving in the right direction. Okay. And there is still strength. And, and the parent could even use that, the, use the terminology of, you know, whatever level at the, of the progression they're at. So if she is able to identify words and maybe she's just having fluency issues, like there's ways to find strengths, even where there are challenges and trying to build on the strengths so that the student sees the progress as it's happening right. and not constantly told that they're just not good enough. Right, right. And the good news is this language you're talking about, I definitely see it more and more in, at least I know in my school board and um, where, where the, where there are those levels. And, um, and I think that sort of the next step is involving the kids more. I think that's the piece of the puzzle that maybe we haven't quite got to. So we've got the success criteria. We've got the, the um, a lot of that sort of reading continuum. I'm just thinking of our primary division has, um, you know, uh, little books that are leveled, you know, A, B, C, D. It mm -hmm. goes, I, I think it goes almost the entire alphabet to be honest. And, um, and so it's making sure that, and I'm, it's obviously very individualized. Some teachers will be doing you know, certain things and some won't, but um, the key factor here is that we don't need to identify them as um, with a letter grade as a reader. We need to encourage them to self-assess to see where they're at with reading. So even if that's happening, like as parents, of course, we, you know, we can't control the report cards, but we can control or support our children in how to um, manage the information from a report card. So even helping to give them the language that at this point, um, you know, what this D is saying, but that it's not, it's, um, as you said, really encouraging them that learning is fluid and that um, this was just one snapshot in time. And this is how the teacher saw your reading at this moment, uh, but that, that the reading, her skill set, and will just keep developing, growing, just like she's physically growing, right? Mm -hmm. So some kids are shorter and some kids are taller in the class and, and everyone has a different growing rate. I know when my, um, 
you know, kids um, have come home with report cards. On our report card um, in Ontario, uh, Canada, we have um, learning skills on the front of the report card. Mm -hmm. And and it's, you know, cooperation, initiative, problem solving, responsibility. Um, I think there's about eight altogether. And my kids know that that's really all I care about, that I just look to see, you know, are you good at these skills, at these learning skills of problem solving initiative? And if you're doing well at this cooperation, um, then my philosophy is, you know, I don't really even need to turn the sheet over because the rest will take care of itself. Um, Because what I want to know is that do you have the learning skills, the life skills to move forward and do well, whether you're in school, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're in, you know, social situations, whatever, um, can you apply those learning skills to all areas of your life? And if you can, then chances are you'll have success uh, no matter what you're, you're approaching. Um, so, so it's really, um, I, I just really love, it's a shift. It's really a paradigm shift of, of how we not only assess, but how we teach, because it starts right from the beginning, the whole, it's a whole process, isn't it? It's not just, oh, it's report card time. Now we got to, you know, pull out our, our grades, you know, a binder and, and try to start figuring out how we're going to, um, evaluate the children's performance. It starts right from the beginning. I think too, to that end, like what you were just saying, it's intentionally developing dispositional learning while they're learning the content and skills so that the emotional dispositions that go with being curious, that go with a growth mindset, that go with keeping kids kind of invested in their own learning one way or another and keeping them open to other perspectives and questioning the things that come around them. Um, developing empathy in them for other learners as well. And just those skills have to be a part and, and shouldn't be assessed in the traditional ways because they just really can't be. Right. But we should be developing those with the other skills that we are developing in the classrooms and, and it will help them be more reflective and metacognitive about their own, pro- their own processes moving forward. Right. I know. I can't um, stress that enough about how this would apply to right now. My, my teaching position is teaching music and drama to primary students and to put a letter grade on the arts um, seems sinful. Um, it's, <laughs> it just seems wrong. And, and so I just have been really racking my brain over how to help um, the students become more involved um, in self-reflecting and, um, and, and in determining what they see their skill level at and their level of understanding of the material I teach them, and then um, sort of co co evaluating um, their their performance and their skills. So um, it couldn't be couldn't be any more um, important to me. And um, but I know I I just want to add sort of another personal story here is is one that I experienced with. Um, with a student when I was teaching uh, in a special ed uh, position, I was teaching grade four or five and six is giving them additional support and literacy. And so they were coming out of their classroom to work on things. And what we really want to get away from, I think is that the damage that report cards can do when someone else decides our identity. And what I was noticing is that how many kids take the report card um, because they're not, um, 
traditionally anyways, in a traditional school and a traditional classroom, I know this, I, I'm not saying this happens in every classroom, but traditionally when we don't involve them in, in that self-assessment evaluation, then they're almost like a victim of somebody else's subjective interpretation of their learning, which, which the strategies used to assess the learning may or may not have been effective. Um, I know that's a challenge as a, as a teacher to give them the right opportunities to get the information I actually really need and want um, to be able to give that mark on the report card, but that the, the kids that were coming to see me were already self-identifying as dumb and stupid um, and, and really had sort of a defeatist kind of attitude, um, you know, sort of slumped into my room, kind of like, you know, you know, I'm here, but why bother? Um, and I found instead of spending a lot of time on literacy skills, I spent far more time on helping them to, um, you know, relabel themselves as learners um, and to inspire themselves as, as, as learners and to become more involved in deciding for themselves, you know, the person that they, that they were as a learner. Um, and, and a quick story, I remember I had a a student, Miles, who was in, in grade five at the time. Um, and he was a great kid, you know, and I, I could see the brightness um, in him. And I was certain there was some sort of learning disability when it came to reading, uh, because his, his comprehension and, and his, and his skill set outside of reading was, was fairly strong. Um, and, uh, but I remember him saying quite, um, uh, really with almost an angry, annoyed voice when I was trying to offer him a better story about himself, he, you know, he said, no, I already know I'm dumb. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, because the report card says I got a, I got a D, you know, and so my heart sunk and, and the best story I could come with at the time is I said to him, you know, Miles, that's just how somebody interpreted your skills, um, but that's not who you are. And I said to him, you know, I knew I knew the background in his family and I knew he was really into mechanics and stuff like that. And so I said to him, you know, if suddenly the school board decided that we're going to really value uh, small engine repair and we need to put that on the report card. And I said, if they put that on the report card, I promised you I would get a D. But let me tell you something. I'm not stupid. And I could just sort of see his mind almost exploding with like, wait, like Mrs. McPherson would get a D, but she's not stupid. And, you know, I said, it's just not my thing. And I said, I, I'm just not mechanically inclined, um, but I'm not stupid. And so it's really about, we need to make sure that we're using report cards for the purpose of self-reflection, feedback, setting new goals, you know, inspiring them to wanna to move ahead rather than labeling them as this is who you are. And I think that if we give them those kind of models too, like we can explain success criteria and we could tell them what the standards are asking them, but they also need concrete examples of what they're shooting for. So, I mean, if Miles had a concrete example of the kind of things like, like I think the example you gave him is, super important for him to understand that we all have our strengths and there are things that make us good and you know good at certain things and any one thing doesn't make us smart or stupid it's just a part of who we are as people and I think as educators we have a responsibility and as parents we have a responsibility to demonstrate that growth mindset being really comfortable and transparent saying it takes time to become good at anything and and being comfortable 
practicing and being wrong and acknowledging when you're wrong or you make mistakes so that your kids can see, oh, oh yeah, that, and that's something that still happens when you're a grown up. You don't grow out of that, you know, when you try something new at any point in your life. And for a lot of these young learners, they're learning to read for the first time or they're learning math for the first time. It's hard. It's hard right. stuff. It takes time right. to learn. Right, right. Good point. So um, I had uh, a parent and, and a teacher, uh, Kathy. Uh, she's from an elementary school and she teaches in Florida and she messaged in, she teaches theater and drama. So another arts teacher. So uh, we share that. And she submitted a question that um, she's in total agreement with the with your approach and in, in hacking assessment. But she said, how do we convince school administration and those in power of the school district uh, to, to take this more, this type of approach, this sort of uh, student-centered evaluation approach? So the proof is really in the data. And I would say that if you try it out for a bit um, and you collect really good data and then students could talk about their learning and you could get that learning either on paper or on video and then share it with your school board and your administrators, no one's gonna tell you not to. Um, it's been my experience that it speaks for itself when an administrator walks into your classroom doing walkthroughs or an observation, they see kids really owning the learning in the space, which is at the highest level of you know, teacher evaluation too, when the students are in control of asking the questions, when they're in control of doing the learning, right? So we have to build a culture inside our classroom that supports those things. And it doesn't happen overnight. And you're not gonna get it the first time you try either. Um, it does take practice. It does take building routines and structures into your classroom where kids, where, where kids aren't just asked to take control at first, if, especially if you get them at the, in the middle years and like um, middle school, like grades six through eight, they'll probably think you're kidding when you say, you know, I want your input when they've already spent five years of their lives being told what to do. And at this point, they want you to just tell them. And, you know, on the other end, you might have defiance in that place too, because if, if we aren't including them from the very beginning, there is a mindset shift that has to happen, not just for the teachers and the administrators, but for the learners also, that their voices right. are valued. And that, you know, for us to all be learning from each other in this space, we have to partner. And that means their voice has to matter in that space. Right. Um, this is a huge paradigm shift then across the whole education system. Agreed. This isn't isolated to evaluation, is it? This is about changing the adults, the, the children that we raise to adults to not value compliance and conformity, but to value um, an individual voice and, and self-determination and self-direction and collaboration um, and a lot of those skills are lost. So we have so many people coming out of, you know, years of education. They did elementary, they did, they did secondary, and then they've, you know, done a, a degree or two in, uh, um, in post-secondary. And they become, they're, they're really experts in, in as far as being filled with knowledge. But as far as skill set, they need to be told what to do. They need to, yep. you know, because their whole paradigm, the whole mindset of their education system has been do this for somebody else um, to get, you know, the prize um, and not to think outside the box or to problem solve or to be creative. Um, 
So, so this is, this is huge. So back to Kathy's question, then I think what I'm hearing you say is just start, start in your own classroom, start doing it, be aware of the potential opposition you might have with students who are kind of blown away that they're going to be involved in, in co-creating assignments and co-creating assessment, and then get the proof. Um, And then once you've got proof that it works, um, that's when you take it to the the higher powers that be. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yep. And I would say too, to have the research, and there's plenty of research out there. There's evidence that supports this kind of learning, whether it's John Hattie's work on visible learning um, or um, any number of other folks. And, you know, like be ready to support why you've made the choices that you've made. I think that's the only thing you really need to be ready to do is to be able to say, I made this choice because I think it's better for student learning. These are the gains I've seen. This this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And maybe even approaching it from the point of, I would like to have some professional learning around that. You know, can we bring somebody in or can I go somewhere to learn a little bit more and maybe turnkey it if we don't do a book study? you know, around a particular text. But like I said, even in the very beginning, when I started shifting what was happening in my classroom, and I didn't have the structures in place yet, there was still um, positive outcomes happening that were evident right away. Um, And there, the reflection was the easiest thing for me to implement without changing too many things, because it was just one additional piece to teach kids and scaffold that process and provide feedback. But what it ended up doing is it it effectively helped me differentiate my classes and the feedback I was giving. So I was getting more yield out of the feedback I was providing my students regularly because I had a much deeper understanding of what they needed from me. Right. So, you know, it right. just wasn't like the same feedback on every single paper. It was feedback based on student perception and student need. And I saw their writing and participation in class improving just because I was listening, like their voices mattered. And I think they started attending more to their learning when they realized that what they were sharing with me was having an impact on what was actually happening in the classroom. Wow. Their voices mattered. That's, that's powerful. Um, and also what comes to mind to me is I know um, there's a, a teacher that just uh, joined um, the staff where I'm teaching. She was sharing that there's a school in Toronto called the Grove Community School in Toronto, uh, where this is their whole, the foundation of of their uh, sort of the belief around um, within the school, because it was actually started by parents. So it was a group of parents who pitched their ideas to the Toronto School Board and the school approved it and opened in 2009. And the, their, their website actually um, highlights this collaborative assessment. Um, and, and the interesting part is most students in this school, um, the parents opt that they not uh, do the standardized testing that is part of our, our province um, and, uh, and explains that as well. So. Um, my friend, uh, my colleague said that the uh, grade three class that she taught 
every student in that class opted out to, uh, to not be in the standardized testing. Um, so she was grateful for that experience because it, it introduced to her what is actually possible that um, this co-collaborative assessment process uh, does really work and the benefits um, it has another little interesting story. She said they do, the teachers do report cards, but they don't even get sent home. They just get put in the OSR because the parents don't want them. Um, because of the ongoing communication that happens all year, they're actually really not necessary. The parents don't even really need them um, because they're involved in, in hearing it on an ongoing basis. So um, I, I really want to thank you for for introducing this idea and sharing your expertise. I know it's been a long journey and it's evolved and and grown and and now you're um, sharing all your your wisdom and experience with others and I'm I'm very grateful for that. And uh, and I remember um, when you know in your TEDx talk at, at the end, it really is about starting with teachers letting go of of that of control. Right, sort of that that risk that we kind of all feel to let go of control and involve um, the students to be far more empowered in in their own in their own learning, and it's uh, it's it's kind of risky and scary, I think, in in many ways, um, but very rewarding in in the long run. I'm hearing so um, that seems quite quite evident to me. <laughs> so, any final uh, thoughts before we uh, we, we end this? A really interesting interview. We could go on for hours, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that if we approach schooling and parenting with the idea that our kids can instead of they can't, mm. um, always kind of coming at learning from a strengths-based model so that you're building on something students already feel competent at, um, and then adding to that with what needs support. Um, because it's really important that a, a young person's um, learning identity isn't defined for them, that they have the opportunity to define themselves as a learner as they move through the process. And as parents, if we could support that positive view, um, not just because we love them and they're our kids, but because we could genuinely see the things that they are strong at and have that partnership with teachers, like there could be strengths that teachers might not know about that parents might know about, about their kids. And I know that when I was in the classroom, I was always appreciative when parents reached out to me and said, you know, he really, you know, he or she really enjoys this. If you engage them in a conversation about music or about skateboarding or about something that's going to keep their interest in class, if you could find a way to bring that in, that kind of information is so helpful to really helping a child engage with the learning that's happening in this space. So parents are so important to our ability to connect with their children as educators that I would encourage, you know, encourage that partnership. Um, even if your student is awesome and knows how to play the game of school so well that you don't ever really have to worry, it, it's still really important, maybe even more so for those ones who start out super strong um, because as soon as the learning does get increasingly more challenging, that um, that challenge it has the potential to really unnerve what they think they know about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen that with my own child um, who excelled at a very young age and was put in gifted programs. And, you know, and then when he met with challenges in his first year of high school, it 
it was not something that was met with very well. Mm. And his own emotional ready, readiness to deal with those kinds of things just wasn't there. He didn't have the skill set to deal with disappointments when he didn't just do well because he does well. Right. You know? Yeah, Re really good. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's so important that we look at the parent and teacher relationship as, you know, it's, it's a triangle, really, it's all three. Um, and then but still focusing on the direction of, of giving the, the student far more power. It's often been sort of like looked at the teacher and parent, you know, at best being, you know, partners as teachers. Um, but it's really about elevating the student to, to come up to be much more involved in, in their own learning. So, so that's great. Well, I cannot say uh, thank you enough for um, how uh, great this has been. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me here today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm eager to hear what folks have to say. Yes, great. Well, I want to conclude this podcast by first thanking uh, Melanie and Kathy for sharing their questions involving children in grades. And I hope you found this podcast episode helpful. To be honest, my ultimate goal of this conversation today is to get us all thinking outside the traditional way of assessment that's at the foundation of our education system. In order to prove the ways we educate our children, it begins with questioning what we've always been doing and asking, is there a better way? I would suggest my guest star, Saxteen, has shed some significant light on this question for us here today. If anyone has more questions about supporting our kids and students through grades and report cards, or how we can begin to shift this age-old educational paradigm in our homes and schools, then be sure to reach out to star at msaxteen at gmail.com. Her Twitter handle is at Ms. Saxteen, and you can also find her on Facebook or on her website at MsSaxteen.com. Of course, I wanna thank my guest once again, Star Saxteen for joining us today and sharing her wisdom and experience when it comes to creating a gradeless classroom. For the parents out there who are teachers as well, I strongly encourage you to check out her book, Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grade School. And even if you're not a teacher, the book offers us the opportunity to examine and question our education pedagogy. Parents are often the driving force behind positive changes in our education system. You may also want to check out Star's latest book, Assessing with Respect, as it focuses more on children's social and emotional needs as learners. One of the good things that has come out of this pandemic has been witnessing how the many tradition, rules, and paradigms in education have been challenged, shifted, and even changed. Some for the better, and some not so much. But at least the pandemic has forced us to question our ingrained rules and routines that sometimes foster learning, but sometimes, often unknowingly, hinders learning. Perhaps we are all on a new path of discovering more effective ways to educate our children that will keep them excited and engaged in the love of learning well past kindergarten. wanting more insight and support on this topic or any other parenting challenge you might be having, then be sure to check out my online parenting workshops at jillmcpherson.com. I have an online four-week workshop for parents of young school-aged children and another one for parents of tweens and teens. 
I also offer the Peaceful Parenting Program for parents who want to build on their knowledge and skills and get their parenting question answered each week. You can also request to join my Facebook group, Awaken Parenting. So you can ask questions along with other caring and conscientious parents who are seeking ways to be the best parents they can be. In the meantime, do you have a parenting question that you would like me to answer in the next podcast? Then please email me at jillmcpersonyes at gmail.com. Until then, this is Jill McPherson inviting you to join me in awakening to a more peaceful way to parent on Awakened Parenting.